Turn with me, if you will, to Mark's Gospel. Chapter 11, begin reading with verse 27. We'll read together down through verse 33. Mark chapter 11, begin reading with verse 27. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you the authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me. And I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for the authority of Christ our King. And Lord, as we come to the reading of your word, we pray that you might be with my feeble lips and enable me by your Holy Spirit to articulate your word to your people in a way they can understand. And we pray, Lord, that you would open our ears, our hearts, May your word be productive and fruitful in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Title of the sermon this morning, The Authority of Christ. For many of us, I think, living in America in the 21st century, we have perhaps a um, not as much of an appreciation for the word authority as people who've gone on before us. In fact, uh, to a lot of people, whenever you say authority, the first thing they picture is something negative. They picture some agent of the state with a uh, club in their hand ready to catch them in the event that they're doing something they shouldn't. Or perhaps they think of something they've read in history books, some totalitarian authority or totalitarian uh, form of government. Perhaps if you're a child um, or a teenager, you think of your parents, and maybe that's something good. I hope it is. But uh, maybe you look at authority as being something that restricts you or prevents you from doing what you really want to do. And I think particularly today, in the context of our culture, our society, where we have redefined authority to be limited to the scope of the individual, in fact, the individual nowadays is considered to be authoritative. We are considered to be sovereign, almost, in a sense, to the point that we can define right and wrong. We can determine what we want to do, what we don't want to do, even so far as determining what gender we want to have. It's a common debate today that's happening uh, in our country. So authority is something that means a lot of different things to a lot of different people, and unfortunately, it doesn't always mean something positive. But when we stop and think about the authority of Christ, and we look at the context of our scripture, we see that when the Jewish elders were asking Christ, on whose authority are you doing these things, authority meant something different to them. And I would suggest, and I hope that by the time we look at these scriptures this morning, that authority would mean something different to us as well. 
So let's look at our first point, which is this, that when Christ responds to the Jewish elders, he first addresses the context of their inquiry. And he demonstrates to them his authority based on his deeds. In fact, that's why they came to him asking him about why he was doing what he was doing in the first place. But if you back up a little bit and you look at the context of Mark's gospel, the 11th chapter, it's interesting to note that the chapter begins with what we call the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday, when um, we celebrate Christ entering into Jerusalem. Well, the beginning of Mark chapter 11 talks about that triumphal entry. It talks about how that uh, on a particular day when Christ was going to Jerusalem, that the men and women and the, the, the people who had been privy to listening to him and hearing his sermons and watching his miraculous deeds, that they came to the city and they they sang out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they did so acknowledging that he was the one who had the rightful claim to the throne of his father David. Now, among that multitude were not only plebeians, so to speak, the poor in society, people who didn't know better, but among that multitude were Jewish leaders as well. In fact, they even told Christ, they said, tell everyone to be quiet. And his response uh, in, uh, was to encourage those who were worshiping to continue to do so. Because if they did not, then even the stones would cry out, announcing the coming of the king. And so the deeds of Christ that are referenced here is not only his triumphal entry, but you have to go a few steps back and see that throughout his entire life, as he entered ministry, coming out of Galilee, he went about doing good. And the Bible says, healing all who were oppressed of the devil. And so his deeds themselves were a message to the people of his time that a new day is dawning, that Christ, the promised Messiah, has come, and therefore the kingdom of God has invaded our world. We see this in Luke's Gospel, chapter 11, verse 20, when he tells the Jewish teachers there that he's responding to, he says, But if the finger of God, if it's by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. In other words, what my deeds indicate is that the very kingdom of God is in your midst. What my deeds authenticate is that I am the king. The king has come. He has stepped forth on the stage of world history. He comes here in, into the Galilean towns preaching the gospel of the kingdom healing all who are oppressed, casting out demons, even raising the dead. And he points to these acts and he says, this is the authentication of my authority. These deeds prove that I am who I say I am. And for this reason, the apostle Peter later in his Pentecost sermon in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, he points to the fact that these deeds authenticated that he came, that Christ came from God. He says this in Acts 2.22. He says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. So in other words, the very acts that Christ did, the very deeds that he did, confirmed his authority. They declared loud and clear, not only to the Jewish leaders of the day, but to all who would listen, that God was among them, that God had became flesh and dwelt among us. 
Christ, the eternal word, was embodied and lived on this earth. Now, there are three things that I believe that we can take from Scripture regarding the authority of Christ, what these authoritative deeds suggest or confirm for you and I. The first is that Christ is God, that he is who he says he is. C.S. Lewis said that we cannot be complacent about who we define Christ to be if we, because he's not simply a good man, nor is he simply a wise man. He's either who he says he is or he's a lunatic. And we have to take him at his word, and that's true, because no other individual in history who had the mighty deeds and the mighty wonders performed as Christ did when he was here on earth, no other individual claimed to be who Christ claimed to be. But it was the very deeds of Christ that authenticated who he was. And so Christ said these deeds mean that I am God. In John chapter 8, verse 58, he says, I am, identifying himself with the very name that God gave to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. Secondly, Christ does the work of God. And that's what the deeds of Christ tell us about his authority. That the work of Christ is the work of of God. We see this in John's Gospel, the fifth chapter, the 19th verse, when he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. In other words, all the deeds I do, they're deeds that I've seen of my Father. They authenticate that I am who I say that I am. And thirdly, the deeds of Christ confirm to us that he indeed is the judge of all the earth. Again, John's Gospel, the fifth chapter, the 22nd verse, Christ says, The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, so that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. So Christ pointed to his deeds, and he said, My deeds are authentication. They verify that I am who I say that I am, that I am the Christ, that I am the Son of God. However, his triumphal entry are not the only more immediate deeds that were performed that day. If you look at, um, or that week, if you look at the 11th chapter of Mark, you know that a couple other things happened. One of the other deeds of Christ, and this is, I suggest to you, probably the most provocative thing that the Jewish elders were addressing when they came to him asking on what authority he did these things. After he entered Jerusalem, among the crowd of people shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He goes to the temple and he finds there the money changers, those who are buying and selling, and he drives them out. He takes a whip and he drives them out. He overturns their tables and he forces them to leave the premise of the temple of God. And he does so by stating, My father's house is to be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. But on his way to the temple that day, the third thing that he did in the context of Mark chapter 11 is he saw a fig tree that had leaves but no fruit. And so he cursed the fig tree. He saw it had leaves and he said, well, here's a, a, a fig tree that's obviously blossoming. I'm going to walk over and, and take some fruit. I'm hungry. But when he went there, the fig tree had leaves but no fruit. So he cursed it. These three deeds, of these three deeds, I would suggest that what the Jewish elders are really questioning him about is the cleansing of the temple. Because if you think about it, it's what hit home for them. They were the rulers of the temple. This was their home. This was their domain. This was their intimate place. 
This was there where they exerted authority and they had respect. And here Christ, this lowly Galilean, turned itiner- a carpenter turned itinerant preacher, walks into the temple and he overturns the tables and he drives out all those who buy and sell. Now, a word about that. According to history, the reason that they had set up tables in the Jerusalem temple was because there were Jews living far outside of Jerusalem, not only in Judah proper and Galilee, but also in different countries where they had been dispersed. And, and three times a year, according to the, the Levitical law, they were required to come to the temple and offer sacrifice. And so if you're coming from Rome, for instance, and you're a Jew and you're coming to the temple to worship God in Jerusalem, you don't want to take with you a lamb and a ram and all the other livestock that you'll need to offer sacrifice. So what they would do is they set up money changer desks and basically they said, you bring to us your money. It's easier to carry money than it is livestock. You bring to us your money and we'll give you in return an animal that you can offer up to worship God. And so it wasn't a bad thing that they were doing necessarily. In fact, they could even argue they were doing ministry. They were providing a means for which people who worship God, who come from afar, could make a transaction that they could buy that livestock and offer it up to God. But the problem was it provided an opportunity for greed and all the sins of the human heart to take hold so that there were people who were who were exploiting this. They were selling animals that were of sub-quality that God in his law told Israel not to offer. And ultimately, they were making the temple, the house that had been designated a house of prayer, a den of thieves and robbers. And so it's these deeds that ultimately you would look at and say, well, he has a right to enter the temple and do whatever he wants. After all, he's God. He's the Son of God. He is the Savior of the world. But the Jewish elders didn't see it that way. And so this leads me to my second point, which is Christ's authoritative inquiry. When the Jewish elders come to him, after they have witnessed this cleansing of the temple, they ask him a question. They said, Teacher, on what authority? In other words, if you were to put it into modern-day colloquial English, they would probably say, how dare you? Who gave you the authority to clean the temple? Who gave you the authority to do the things that you've done? Now, the response of Christ is very interesting. And I, I find it interesting for two reasons. One, he asked them in return a question that seemingly has nothing to do with the question they asked. But secondly, I, I find his, re- his reaction interesting because I identify with the Jewish leaders. I find that more often than not, I too ask Christ, maybe not verbally, maybe not consciously, and then t- sometimes I do ask Christ consciously, what are you doing? What are you up to? But the Jewish leaders came to Christ and said, what are you doing? On what authority? Who gave you the authority to wreak havoc in our lives? Who gave you the authority to go throughout the temple and overturn these tables? This is ministry. This is what we're doing for God. And Christ responds with a question that seemingly has nothing to do with their question whatsoever. And he says, I'll ask you a question. And if you answer it, then I'm going to tell you by what authority I've just done all that I've done. The baptism of John. 
Was it from heaven or was it of men? Fairly straightforward question, a simple question. All they had to do was say what they really thought. But then they began talking among themselves and they said, well, if we say from God, he's going to say, why didn't you believe and get baptized and repent? But if we say from men, then everybody in the temple who looks at John, who looked at John as being a prophet sent from God, is going to think we're foolish because we say from men. And so at the core of their desire was not a desire to please God, was not a desire to get the answer right. At the heart of their answer was a desire to look good in the eyes of others. And so they said, Master, we can't tell. And so Jesus said, neither do I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, why do I identify with the Jewish leaders? Why do I, even though when I first read this passage, I self-righteously reprimand them in my heart and I say, how dare they address the king of heaven and earth by saying, on what authority do you do this? But then when I stop and I realize that really what they're doing is saying, on what right, on what authority, on what grounds do you come into the sphere of my world and wreak havoc on what I think is a legitimate ministry, on what I think is good and right and decent? That's ultimately what they're asking. On what right do you have to come into my life and turn things upside down? Now, of course, the answer is Jesus has every right. That's our answer, is it not? That's our Sunday school answer. But let's get real with each other for a minute. How often have we asked that question? Maybe you're asking that question this morning. Because when Christ, when we are confronted with the truth of the great I am, not only the deeds of the gospel, the deeds of the life of Christ that are revealed to us in Scripture, but when we're confronted with the very person of Christ in our life, when Christ comes into our life and does something that we don't think he should be doing, when he messes with that pet idol that we just want to tuck away in a closet and pretend is not there, when he touches that soft spot that just causes us to cry out in pain, what is your response? Do you coil up in a corner and say, how dare you? Or do you acknowledge that his authority gives him the right to come into your world and that he, at his very core, is not wreaking havoc, but is seeking to call you and I sinners to repentance so that we can bow down at the foot and acknowledge the authority of the only authority in the universe, the only real authority in the universe. And if you say, well, I've never been there. I've never experienced Christ overturning my proverbial money tables, then I would suggest to you just wait. Because there will be a time, there will be a point in your life when the gospel addresses the most hidden sin and the most hidden secret of your life. Because that's what it does. It discloses to us not only the grace of God and the promise of Calvary that he forgives to the utmost those who call upon him, but it also discloses to us our ugliness and the wretchedness of our sinful souls. And if we have acknowledged the one without experiencing the other, then I would suggest that we have not experienced the sa saving power of the gospel. 
Because it's easy to stand at the gate and say, Hosanna, as long as Christ is doing what you think he should be doing. As long as following him is comfortable and looks like what you think it should look like. It's easy to follow the throngs and shout Hosanna. But what about when he comes into the proverbial money changer of your heart and turns things upside down? What then? Do we acknowledge the authority of Christ in those moments? Or do we, like the Jewish elders, give more concern for what people say about us and what others think of us than the heart-rendering knife of the gospel which Christ is using to redeem and, and to heal and to mend our brokenness. So Christ's authoritative inquiry, the very fact that he asked them a question, the very fact that he answered their question with a question, if you understand the context of the day, you knew that only a rabbi who was equal with you could answer your question with a question. And it was typical. In fact, if you read the ancient, what they call Midrashim, which are the writings of the rabbis, you see that oftentimes they answer each other's questions with questions. Because it was a, it was a, a, a learning technique, a process that they used to communicate among equals. So the fact that he asked them a question that was an answer to their question said, look, I'm going to address you as an equal because I am the word incarnate, but ultimately the authority that I have is the ultimate authority. The authority that I have, look at my deeds, hear my inquiry, notice that I'm going point blank by seemingly asking a question that has no relevance to what you've asked or what's going on. I'm asking a question that goes straight to your heart. Because I know that if you knew where the baptism of John came from, you would know where I came from. And so Christ bears no bones about it when he reveals to the Jews his authority through his questioning. When I was living in Israel about 15 years ago or so, I was a student there studying abroad, and one Friday evening I went down to the Western Wall, which is the last remnant of one of the last visible remnants of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And I was standing there just watching people as they came and go and watching the, um, the worshipers of the wall praying. And a gentleman walks up to me and he starts talking and he and I have this great conversation going. And um, our, our conversation is directed towards Israeli politics and Israeli government. And he and I are talking and then out of the blue he says, um, would you like to see the Knesset? Now the Knesset is the Israeli Senate. It's equivalent to our Senate building or our House of Representatives. And um, I thought to myself when he asked that question, who in the world do you think you are? The Knesset's probably the most well-guarded building in Jerusalem, which in and of itself is pretty well-guarded for obvious reasons. And I thought, who, who, who are you? Who do you think you are that you, could, you would ask me if I want to see the Knesset? I'm an American student. I have no right to see the Knesset, and you probably have no right to take me there. But then the longer that he and I talked... I realized that I was talking to what is the equivalent of our Speaker of the House, the guy who is, at the time, who was Speaker of the Knesset. And then I realized that he was able to follow through with what he was asking because of who he was. And if we look at what Christ is asking of the Jewish elders, what you and I realize is he is able to go deep. He is able to hit point blank their idol to hit point blank that soft spot in their heart.
because of who he is. It is the basis of his authority that enables him to ask them this question. The third point that I want to make is his authoritative revelation. If I am not offended by the fact that Christ asked them a question to answer their question, I might be offended, and perhaps you might as well, by the fact that he does not reveal himself to them at this time. He simply says that I'm not going to tell you on what authority I do the deeds that I do either. And if that's offensive to you, stop and ask yourself the question. Could it not be because you and I, living in the day that we live in, where, the self, where we live under the autonomy of the self and we feel like that the ultimate authority is me and what I determine to be right and wrong? And we see this replete throughout society where people consider it a shame if you know something and choose not to tell. If you know something that could change their life and you choose not to tell them, they will ostracize you and consider you the devil. Because ultimately, we feel entitled. We live in an age where we feel entitled to anything that might be beneficial. And so when I read this particular passage and I realize that Christ did not seize this opportunity to really disclose himself, I realize that by choosing not to, he is really establishing his authority. No one can come to the Father except through Christ. And no one can come to Christ except the Spirit draws him. So the fact that you and I, those of us who believe this morning, those of us who have surrendered our hearts to this Savior, who's come in and declared himself to be the King of kings and Lord of lords, the fact that we do cannot be attributed to our superior intellectual abilities. It can only be attributed to the fact that God, in his own desire and his own, of his own will, chooses to reveal himself to whomsoever he chooses to reveal himself. And so Christ's authority, his authoritative revelation, rested on this very thing. And he actually, at the tomb of Lazarus, prayed and thanked God that God had withheld the revelatory knowledge of who Christ was from the sages and the saints, but had revealed it unto babes and sinners. Because in his self-disclosure, there is a demonstration of his authority that he is who he says he is. He is God. And so for this reason, whenever we think of, of our salvation, we think of regeneration. We have a term for it. It's called monergistic. And what that means, it's an adjective to describe the process. And basically what we're saying through that fancy word is that none of our regenerative process belongs to us. Even the desire to repent and acknowledge him as Lord of lords and King of kings comes from God's good grace, enabling us to believe, enabling us to see that Christ is who he said he was, that Christ is the Son of God. When he said to the Jewish leaders, I will not tell you by what authority I'm doing this, interestingly enough, he was establishing the, the, the very authority that they were questioning. He was revealing not only to those who heard and understood, but to you and I 2,000 years later that Christ and he alone discloses himself to whomsoever that he chooses. 
And yes, he's beckoned us in Scripture, whomsoever will let him come and drink of the river of life freely. But the only way that we can desire that river, the only way that we can get up and come is if his Holy Spirit intervenes in our life and his grace causes us to be resurrected, spiritually speaking, because we are all born dead in sin and trespasses. And so the very authority of Christ is established not only by his deeds, not only by his inquiry, by his ability to go there, to go to that deep place with these people, but also by his self-revelation. So what does it look like for you and I today to live under the authority of Christ? What does it mean? If Christ is the final authority, if he is who he said he was, if he is authoritative, it doesn't mean that we'll never squirm in his presence. It doesn't mean that he'll never come into our life and overturn the sacramental money tables in our life and drive out those sacred cows of money changers that we have erected. In fact, it means the exact opposite. It means that he will. If Christ is Lord of our life, as Taylor Hudson, who was the great missionary to China, said, Christ is either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. So the authority of Christ in our life covers everything that we are, everything that we do, and everything that we, every business we transact. So to live under the authority of Christ means that we submit to his sovereign will in every area of our lives. There's not one area of life that is not subject to divine interruption or interference. There's not one area of life that is hidden from the one who walks in the temple and drives out those who are making it a den of thieves. There's not one area of our life that does not fall under the dominion of his lordship. Whether it be our relationships, our finances, our worship, our daily schedules, everything that we are and everything that we do is under his sovereign rule. This means that we spend money how and when and where he is glorified. This means that we work in our occupations and the places that he has placed us, not haphazardly waiting for the weekend, but working as unto the Lord and knowing that he has us there for a reason. And this means that we love as we have been loved, which is a self-sacrificing love. It means that we surrender all that we are to him. Why? because he's our authority, because he's our Lord, and because he and he alone brings truth, brings healing, and brings wholeness to our lives. Now, if you feel a little uneasy by this, I think that's a good thing. And I want to lead you a bit further into this passage, into this text, a bit further into asking questions, which I believe this text demands us to ask. Ask the question, are you, am I submissive to the authority of Christ? Am I, as Paul admonished the people of the church of Rome to be, are we submitting ourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable and pleasing to God? Or are we going our own way and doing our own thing? Are we in love with the temple? Are we in love with the trappings of our worship? Are we in love with a, what we think is a legitimate demonstration of our service to God? Or are we in love with God? 
Are we submissive to him or do we insist on our own way and on our own path? If you're in here and you've trusted Christ and you know that you're resting in his arms, we can be grateful because we know that he has the authority to reveal himself. And if he's revealed himself to us, it's not by any good works we have, but it's because of his grace and grace alone. But if you've not accepted Christ, if you've not experienced this saving knowledge, understanding that Christ is who he says he is, then I would just encourage you to trust him, to trust his authority. Or if you're in here and you've been faithfully endeavoring to follow Christ, where he leads you, you will follow. But of late, he's just stepped into your little sacred world and wreaked havoc on things. I want to encourage you to trust his authority because he is a kind and gentle shepherd. And even though we may weep for the night, joy will come in the morning. Even though we may be uncomfortable now, that discomfort is a good thing. Even though we may be changing and growing faster than we want to, that is a good thing. Let us follow him. Let us follow his leadership and follow his authority all the way. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, you are the sovereign king. Your authority, all authority, is yours in heaven and on earth, and we submit ourselves to you. We look at your deeds as disclosed in your word. We hear the questioning that you reply to the question given to you, and we see of your own accord your willingness and your desire to disclose yourself to others. And Lord, we stand on this side of the cross, grateful for who you are, that truly you are the sovereign victor. You are the king eternal, and we will follow you. Lord, even though our heart may be crying out, who are you? What right? We pray that in the process of overturning those tables, that you would change us into your image. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.